Welcome to episode 296 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. Did you just hear something a little bit different this yeah, time? What, what was that? What, what is this in the background? What is this sound? What is this new, this new music hitting your eardrums for the very first time? So last week, we had... Uh, friend of the pod, Jonathan Fisher, sent us his piano rendition, uh, which we linked to in the show notes, a uh, piano version of our intro music. And we joked about what would it be like if people sent in their own versions of the intro music and we could have something new each episode. And I said, oh, that sounds like a whole lot of work. <laughs> Expecting no one to do it. Well, turns out. Turns out, uh, friend of the pod, Gabe Valdivia, who has also been on this show a couple times uh, back when we did interviews. So Gabe Gabe heard us talking about this, and Gabe is a musician. He actually just recently released his own album, link in the show notes. Gabe put a lot of work into that. You've heard just the tiniest snippets. What we've opened with is the instrumental version of Gabe's rendition of Design Details. There is lyrics. We have lyrics. We have a Design Details rap. It's official. It has happened. <laughs> Design Details rap is happening. It is, I think, five minutes long. So we're going to play it at the end of the episode. Stick around after the outro. Gabe has recruited vocalists, lyricists, writers, producers. I don't know what the hell Gabe did to pull this together, but uh, a lot of work went in and we are loving it, even though it does uh, make fun of us. So yeah, that's fine. Though. We, deserve, <laughs> we deserve it. We deserve it. So Gabe, thanks for the, the music. Yeah, thanks, man. Listeners, stick around. We're going to have the full design details wrap. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe that's a sentence. Uh, so stick around after the show, but let's dive into it. And of course, we've got Abstract here to make this entire episode possible. Yes, thank you to Abstract for sponsoring this episode. Abstract is design workflow management for modern design teams. Today, designers spend a frustrating amount of hours searching for files, consolidating feedback from multiple sources, and never really knowing what changes have been incorporated and approved. So that's where Abstract comes in to make all of these problems a thing of the past. It's like GitHub, but for designers. GitHub is a good product. I hope some of you have heard of it. It's a version-controlled source of truth for your design work. It lets you bring all of your design workflows into a single unified place, not only for your design team, but also for all the developers and all the stakeholders you work with in your company so that you can collaborate better and keep work moving forward. It's end-to-end -end collaboration, everything from designing files and storing them to requesting reviews, gathering feedback, presenting your work. And of course, when things are ready to get built, you can hand off your spec directly from Abstract to your developers. All of this on a platform that works both on and offline. In just the last couple of years, Abstract has acquired over 100,000 users. That's people from companies like Intuit and Zappos and MailChimp Thousands of others across 75 different countries, they all rely on Abstract to improve their design workflows. So as the roles of designers, developers, and product managers become more intertwined, the team at Abstract believes that a more collaborative and open platform will enable faster production cycles. Today, if you're using Sketch, you should be using Abstract. It is the design tool of choice for many product designers, hopefully for you. And in 2019, Abstract is going to continue to roll out support for additional file types from the Adobe suite to beyond. You can get all of this and more for free today. They have a 30-day trial for you and your team at abstract.com. Again, that's abstract.com. Go get signed up. You and your team can try it for 30 days. No risk. Money back guarantee because it's free. What are you waiting for? Go to abstract.com. Thank you so much, Abstract, for making this episode possible. Thanks, Abstract. That was an aggressive ad read there, Brian. Do it now! <laughs> yeah. Abstract.com! 30 days! <laughs> oh, you know what we should do sometime is uh, a used car salesman version of that read. <laughs> yeah. 
slaps car. <laughs> Come on in today and get yourself some version control design files with abstract.com. Something like that? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I'll let you do the whole thing. Yeah, you can just do the whole thing. <laughs> we can leave that in. Thank you, Drew. And thank you to Abstract for making this episode possible. As always, Marshall. Let's get into it. Let us get into it. Yeah, so I have some quick follow-up. Actually, it's not so quick. (laughs) (laughs) Buckle in. We got a long follow-up. Strap in. It's an interesting conversation. So a few weeks ago, we talked about AR, and we debated whether or not it was a gimmick. I took the devil's advocate side of uh, it's it's a total piece of shit, and nobody should use it except for a couple different things, which I kind of believe, but not really. (laughs) God damn, you are wishy-washy on this, Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) I took a a harder line than I actually uh, believe, but... But I've been thinking about about AR since then, and you know something came up in the Google I/O event that we're going to talk about. But it started me thinking about this, and I was watching baseball the other day. Don't ask me why. And hang on, actually, why were you watching baseball? Okay, I forget exactly how it started, but I I watched like a a football like craziest plays compilation thing on YouTube. Yeah, which suggested other sports craziest plays, and one of those was baseball. Yeah, you got clickbaited into watching baseball. Got yeah, it. I got I got rabbit holed. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I loved every second of it. So, um, so I'm watching this thing, and they have a strike zone. They have a virtual strike zone that that shows up over the plate, which is super useful. I've seen it in like MLB at bat. Like if you downloaded the separate app, you could kind of see that as like I said. I think it was even Flash when they first started doing it. Um, but you could see where each ball was placed, uh, where each where each pitch went, and what was hit, etc. As kind of like a a visual diagram of the of the paper sheets that guys at the at the game fill up but it was really cool to see the the strike zone in in real time over the plate instead of just kind of having to imagine it you know knowing what size the strike zone is right and then uh, i was watching something else so so that rabbit hole turned into like craziest car crashes in racing and one of them uh, included nascar which i also had AR tracking labels that were that had like a little tail pointing down to the car that it was referring to and the name of the driver and the number and all that stuff. And then I was watching golf and it had a very similar thing when, when the player hits the ball that there's a, a virtual arc that tracks the the uh, line of the ball. Uh-huh. And I was thinking about all these things. I'm like, you know, in addition to obviously the football uh, first yard line, as like all of these are super useful and they are additional productive additive things instead of just kind of distracting. And it reminded me of an anecdote from a long time ago. Turns out it was like over 20 years ago that I remember this from. But I think even before the first downline, the line to gain in football, the yellow line that you see, even before that technology existed, they tried to do this a similar thing by highlighting the puck in hockey games. Mm. And it was basically like a blue circle that went around the puck and it would track it around so you could very easily see where the pocket was at any time. And it used similar technology that the racing racing AR stuff uses, which is basically they embed a chip inside of the puck or inside of the car, and that's how they figure out where the tail should point to on screen or where the, the highlight should appear, instead of using like uh, machine visioning to figure out what's actually happening on screen and draw the line for football, which is how they do that. But hockey fans fucking revolted. They hated it. They hated the circle around the puck. Uh, they call it the glow puck, right? 
and uh, they just really didn't like it. And I thought it was really interesting that every sport has benefited from this technology, except for hockey, which could have benefited, but the fans themselves said, no, no thank you, get this shit out of my face. So this was 20 years ago, right? This is in 96 or something like that. Yeah, so over 20 years ago. Have they retried with, with a younger audience today? I don't know. I don't think so, because I've watched hockey. I have friends who watch hockey, and I don't think, I, I still don't think it. they use it today. Wow. And, and part of the reason, I read an article on this in preparation, because I actually did a little bit of homework for this episode, unlike usual, and I read an article, and it said that a lot of the backlash was from American fans who thought that the the technology was being applied so that us stupid Americans could appreciate a sport that would otherwise be too complicated for us to understand as, as dumb Americans with their dumb American brains who couldn't get it and got to put the flashy new technology with the big glowing thing on it to, to keep our attention. And so American hockey fans were offended by that and said, <laughs> go figure. Yeah, we were not dumb. We can follow the sport just as well as you Canadians. And um, we don't need this damn thing. So get it off of our screens. And they did. And it's never come back to my knowledge. Meanwhile, that same technology or similar sibling technology has invaded basically every major sport aside from maybe basketball and uh yeah it's everywhere except for the place it originally started so i thought that was an interesting little anecdote to bring up about ar fascinating i mean basketball has a lot of ar integrated after the fact like i'm i don't i guess i don't watch enough sports but they'll show you like heat maps of where players are shooting from and like where where teams have the the highest hit rate of you know three pointers or or field goal shots and things like that but that's after the fact right yeah i've seen like post you know game recap things where they'll do like and the same thing in football where they'll do like a matrix camera move where like they'll pause time and rotate the camera like basically blend between two camera states and it kind of feels weird 3d in between yeah but i haven't seen much in the way of actual ar like overlaying stuff except for what you're talking about like um you know shot locations right well that's so interesting i wonder if hockey fans will ever get another go at that or if uh that would transcend generations? Like if hockey viewers today would still hate it for the same reasons or if there'd be new reasons or perhaps they would appreciate it given the world that we live in today is way more tech augmented. So maybe that wouldn't be a big deal. Are hockey fans and just like the culture around hockey, is that just a different beast that will never, like that's, that's literally the only sport besides boxing where it's okay for players to beat each other up in the middle of the game. Like that's like just part of the game. Yeah. Like throw your gloves off and fucking throw down until one of you hits the ground. And that's not like, you can't throw a punch. If you throw a punch in football, even if it's like to somebody's helmet and there's no chance of you actually hurting them. Like if you throw a punch, you get ejected. That's the rule. Same thing in baseball or any other sport. So it's funny. Hockey maybe just be a different beast. I don't know. I don't watch it, but that was interesting. Interesting. All the same. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll get into some more AR stuff with the Google IO recap. So uh, another piece of follow-up would be we tweeted a second iteration of the cover art for for design details and got some good feedback. I, I have a custom font from one of our listeners, Josh Shao. So thank you for that, Josh. I'm going to try that out in the new cover art. Look for more images coming soon. Yeah, so that's just a quick, quick catch up on, on the uh, cover art stuff. Yeah, it seems like the feedback was trending in the right direction. I don't know. We, we got some funny messages like Michael Knapprath tweeted at us yesterday saying, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to comment on the design <laughs> details album art redesign right now. Yeah. The reason being... I'm very attached to the current versions. Anything I say would likely be colored by that sad face. 
So I feel it like I'm also attached to the current version, but it's fun exploring the new thing. I think personally, I like the direction. I'm not sold on the type and I'm not sold on monospace. I feel like monospace is just leaning way too far into the like structure of of the art totally like we now have a grid and everything is it feels super mathematical and the current art feels super organic and it's like a blueprint yeah and i want to find well actually today's art feels like a blend of organic and there's some you know grid lines or whatever you call this yeah it's more like a concept car illustration where there's like continued lines continued lines yeah yeah yeah. anyways yeah i i'm so i should caveat this by saying and i think i've said it on twitter but i am not a type guy like (laughs) i'm not a typography guy type and colors are the things i'm kind of blind to that and wedding dresses like i can't i can't (laughs) unrelated yeah i can't tell if if typography is good unless it's really bad Uh, i can't tell if typography is bad i can't tell if colors are necessarily good i just tend to gravitate towards grays and like you know uh, saturated blues and reds and stuff and i can't tell a good looking wedding dress from a bad looking wedding dress they all look the same to me i'm blind to them so uh if the typography looks bad that's definitely my fault and i'm sorry i can't help it (laughs) he's trying his best everyone i'm doing what i can with what i have give the little guy some support you know which is why your suggestions are so valuable because i i just have no (laughs) no uh, ability to make a good decision on that so thank you josh and everyone else who's recommended type suggestions you know it's funny you and i struggle from a lot of the same things or suffer from a lot of the same handicaps so mine would be color type i I just lean on system defaults which is uh pretty boring and then fashion yeah i'm i'm oblivious 100 oblivious i don't think i'm oblivious to fashion in general it's mostly like women's fashion and especially like formal women's fashion sure yeah yeah wedding dresses and like fancy shoes and shit like that i see people wear things that in my head i know are fashionable but i don't understand why they are fashionable like i understand oh that person is hip i could never pull that off like something with color (laughs) any color i'm like oh that person understands color in a way that I never could. So I will continue to, to be a monochromatic boy, which is pretty boring. I should send you a picture of my closet. Oh, uh, please do. <laughs> yeah, it's literally it's literally grayscale and RGB. Like yeah, I have yeah. like like probably 70% of my closet is white through black. And then I have a few blue things, like very saturated blue. I have a few green things and a few red things. And that's it. That's yeah. it. Boring boys. Boring boys unite. All right. Boring boys, I guess, you know, means there's room to improve. But my shirts are cool, though. Yeah. I mean, grayscale's still cool. Yeah. I mean, it can't go wrong. with. And I think it kind of feeds into, and there's a reason for it, but it feeds into the whole, like, designers only wear black thing. Like, well, can't go wrong with black. Yeah, that's true. If you want to follow along with the album art progression, uh, we'll continue tweeting that on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM, so follow us there and then tweet at us whenever we tweet updates. We, we love the feedback. Keep it coming. Please. All right, I have a tiny bit of news. I'm super cursory familiarity here, but I saw someone tweet something that, that caught my eye. Uh, this is from someone named Mind Apavesa. I hope I'm pronouncing that somewhat close on Twitter. And Mind and another designer named Marissa Chentacol. Chintakul, sorry, I'm fucking this up. Marissa and Mind started a podcast called Design Picnic, which is a product design podcast featuring Thai designers across industries from around the globe. It's high quality resources for aspiring designers in Thailand. And this caught my eye because uh, that's awesome. I think uh, localized podcast content for product designers or, or any kind of designer in this case 
uh, is super valuable since, you know, Marshall, you and I can only bring so many perspectives to the table. So we'll have a link to the show notes. That American flavor. It's ketchup. It's just ketchup. <laughs> just the blandest ketchup. <laughs> if you are a Thai designer or you're in and around Thailand or just interested in the Thai perspective on uh, user experience and product design, uh, we'll have a link to Design Picnic. We're unaffiliated. This is not on the spec network. Just saw the tweet and thought that was, uh, it's it's great to see more more podcasts popping up. For, for specific kinds of audiences that we might not be able to reach very effectively. so Indeed. And one run by ladies, too. Yes, much needed. So well done, Mind and Marissa. That's news, but we also have uh, an event that happened this week, Marshall. Yeah, uh, Google held its I.O. event. So we had Facebook F8 last week, and then this week we got I.O. So uh, it was a long keynote, but there were a few things that stood out to me that I wanted to talk about with you, my friend, Brian. Let's do it. Okay, so I'm probably going to leave some stuff out, and if there are things that that were mentioned that you think we should talk about, let us know, either through the Twitters, Design Details FM. Uh, okay, so one of the things that stood out to me pretty heavily was the focus on privacy, which is also a theme that was heavily talked about at F8. So, And Apple always brings up privacy whenever they talk about stuff, too. So it seems like, well, we've talked about privacy a lot uh, on the show, and uh, security and other things like that. And it's interesting to see this become more of a staple of the OS, you know, at the OS level, um, as opposed to just being per app or something like that. And I think, so when iOS and Android and these things first started, there was kind of a quiet background yell from people of like, give us more privacy controls, give us more privacy controls. And I'm not sure what the reason was that they didn't, that either company didn't do that right away. My guess is that it's just very complicated, not necessarily from a technical, like technological implementation standpoint, which although that probably is pretty difficult, but also from like, it's just going to muddy up the interface and there's going to be so much granularity if you want the control that you're actually asking for, that it's like going to be so fucking confusing. Well, we got it now. Um, we got. We have so much granular privacy control. But I think one of the cool things to come out of all of this, and obviously having granular control of your privacy is a good thing, but it's very complicated and it's hard for uh, the average casual pleb to you know, pleb user to under, to understand. So, but there's this larger idea or or a umbrella of privacy that has long existed called incognito mode that I think a lot of people already understand. And Google is bringing incognito mode to it seems like both YouTube and Chrome where it's always existed, but uh, also bringing it to YouTube and Maps, which I find really interesting that they're expanding incognito mode into, into other apps. I think it's really smart. What do you think, Brian? I think it's smart. I think incognito maps is an interesting use case. I could see like the the first use cases that come to mind are, are nefarious in nature to me for maps in particular. But YouTube, absolutely. Like if I need to look up an embarrassing tutorial for like, I don't know, how to pop a zit or, or you know, something that you just don't want in your history. Yeah, please, uh, I don't know, like anything embarrassing like that, or, or or you need to to watch a music video from an artist that you don't want to skew your results. It's like yeah, throw it in incognito mode, something like that. Well, let's talk a little more about the the privacy stuff because I think incognito is great. I think it's a brilliant name for a thing that is becoming synced across products from the Google sphere. So. Mm-hmm. It's a very Google thing too, like incognito. Yeah, yeah, with that with the hat and the glasses and everything. Yeah, but the the privacy stuff is 
a fascinating design problem from an information hierarchy perspective, especially from Google, because they just can't stop releasing new devices and new features. And every feature interoperates in some way. And like, uh, you know, technically maybe this is easier, but from a design perspective, I can't envision a world where this is easy for any normal person to understand what data is being consumed. And I feel like people demanded privacy and Google said, here's all of the privacy you could ever want. And now it's just incomprehensible. Yeah, it's like the guy who gets a parking ticket and pays in pennies. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, okay, you want it? And I should preface by saying, like, I don't know anything about any of this stuff. Like, I, I know as much as the average consumer does. My only information on this stuff has come from public disclosures. So like, Your opinions are your own and not, do not represent your employer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let me call out some specific examples. So they have, like, Google privacy settings, and I have multiple Google accounts for different email addresses. Like, I have a work account that's powered by G Suite, and then I have... G Suite accounts for Spectrum and for SpecFM. So I'm already flooding in Google accounts. And then within each of those Google accounts, there is a privacy and settings page that has like eight sub-tabs. The first one is called Home, which is supposed to be like a high-level thing. Then there's personal info, data and personalization, security, people and sharing, and then payments and subscriptions. And within each of those tabs, there are like five or six sub-pages per tab. So you just have this crazy matrix, and this is for one Google account on one device. Well, aren't there uh, higher level toggles, right, where you can say like, just turn off all of my location? Like, if you have a if you have an account that you don't use very often and you don't want it tracking you or whatever, like you can just turn all that stuff at the top level. You don't have to get into the granular sub pages. Yeah, yeah. So this is the problem, right? Is like you're forced into this all or nothing approach, and hitting a middle ground is pretty tricky. And I think that. I, I don't know the answer to that. Like technically it's probably pretty hard, but how do you design something that's like accessible, understandable, doesn't take somebody 30 taps, but also puts them into a state where they actually want to be in, which is not all or nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of what I was getting at at the beginning of like, you know, for the average user, this is going to be just way too much information. And it's probably why the reason why this amount of information wasn't available initially when these OSs first launched is like, it's just too much for the average person to understand or manage. Right. And then, you know, they're going to have all all these uh, Google Nest devices, which are cameras that are always on in your home. Nah, not always on. Okay. They can be on most of the time. But then additionally, Google Home, which is the audio, which is always on to listen for the keyword. Well, did you notice on that Nest thing, uh, the guy made a very specific call out. He said, when you flip the switch on the back, it doesn't just turn off the microphone and the the camera. It like physically disconnects the electricity behind there. Like, yeah, I think that's becoming table stakes for anything with a camera. Like the new the new MacBooks have that, right? If you close yeah. if you close the MacBook lid, it physically disconnects the microphone. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. So the microphone can't be activated when your computer's closed. Anyways, I think physical switches will become more common. And I think that's how it should be, right? Like, that is way safer. There's an air gap between these contacts, right? Like, it's impossible to hack because it literally just can't happen physically. Right. Yeah. Uh, or, Or you do something that's a little bit more dead simple, like Facebook, where you just give them a little clip that goes over the camera. It's like, well, this thing is covering the camera. The camera just can't work right now. It doesn't help the microphone, but yeah. So I I think I'm a little bit torn and it's hard to not be hypocritical when I talk about this stuff with Google services because there are Google services that so visibly get better the more data that you give to it. Mm -hmm. Most of them do, to be honest. That it just 
it becomes really tempting to just throw everything at it. And it's really unclear what the long-term consequences of that will be. And I think as they continue to add more devices, as the assistant gets smarter, I think all the demos with assistant were unabashedly just give us everything. Tell us everything about you. Tell us your anniversary. Tell us the name of all, all of your your family, your relationship to them, how you interact with them. And we will customize the assistant so that you can say things like, call my mom, remind me to buy a birthday present for my son. And it will do all of that for you, right? Like it, in theory, it can, you know, it's reading your email to know what the last car rental company you use. And it will rent a car that you prefer to drive based on your height and weight and the distance, like just whatever. It's, it's unbelievable how good it can be, but it requires so much from everybody. And I'm disclosure. I'm just not sure where I fall on that. I can't help but be hypocritical and saying some of that stuff looks exciting. And it, it's so tempting to just jump into the deep end of the Google experience because everything is so integrated. And then that's that's simultaneously the terrifying thing that having jumped all in, my data is now everywhere. It has invaded Google's systems in a way that I don't think it can ever be truly removed from, regardless of if they say something's being deleted. There is a very thorough thing. It's called takeout, which allows you to not only delete, but also uh, export all of the information you've ever given to Google. So yeah, and that is definitely something that, that exists. Got it. There were a couple interesting things or exciting things for me on the privacy front. Like I think they have a new feature coming where you can have it auto delete your location history after a certain amount of time. The Snapchatification of everything. Yeah, I think that is likely a future trend we're going to see. I hope that comes to things like Facebook and Twitter where you could opt in to basically a rolling three-month view of, of your life and then everything else we recognize is a huge liability for people. So just turn on a setting to roll through, keep three months of history, everything else goes in the garbage. A lot of companies do this anyways with emails, right? Like after a year, your corporate email gets deleted. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And part of that is like legal obligation and, you know. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I I think that helps too with any of the hesitancy one might have of giving information over if you know that's going to be gone in a set period of time. So if you avoid... Or if it's been a certain amount of time, that information is completely gone and no one can hack it. Or you only have to worry about the information that currently exists if you are hacked. Right. Okay. Well, that's uh, information and privacy. Yeah, I know everybody loves us talking about security and privacy so much. It's something we do all the time. Anyways, let's move on. So uh, another thing that I noticed and something we talk about quite a bit is dark mode. So um, dark mode official coming to Android and there have been rumblings that the same thing is happening with iOS. I feel like we have turned a corner, Brian. Yeah, it's got to happen at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Everywhere, dark mode everywhere. It's nice. I found the material IO website spec for the dark theme to be the most interesting because they dig into the math of it, like all the specific rules for how depth should work in a dark theme and how it's not about inverting shadows. And this bumps into my problem with material in general is I don't know how easy this will be to actually implement. Like if there will be really, really great first party APIs for this, or if it's up to designers to continue reading the rules and implementing dark mode in a way that's not simply a color inversion and inverting shadows and things like that. Yeah, really what you want is you want semantic color names, right? Like you want you want to be able to define and say, okay, this is text primary, right? But text primary doesn't care what mode it's in. It's it's, you know, 
dark in light mode and it's light in dark mode. But but there's just a semantic color that um, has two or more variations based on the mode. But it doesn't care. You just call it you just call it text primary, text secondary, icon active, right? And that that's kind of what you want. I'm not sure. I have no idea how this is going to be implemented. Obviously, but yeah, that's that's what I would hope for. Is like let me just call my colors a semantic name that is completely ambivalent to the mode that I'm in, and have the mode drive what color actually gets what hex actually gets filled in yeah i agree yeah so well we are nearing a day when all major operating systems have both a light and dark mode and every app that you use supports both light and dark mode i can't wait i'm so happy (laughs) uh have you found yourself using mostly dark mode for everything yeah boy any anytime i can especially if the app allows it to be automatic i i set it to be automatic so it's light during the daytime when it's bright and it's dark during the nighttime when it's dark or the room when it's dark, right? That's my favorite is like current situation. Look at the ambient light level and then adjust based on that. Right. How, what do you prefer? Uh, I was into dark at first. I thought I turned on dark for most things, but I've pretty much reverted to all light theme at this point. Really? I think Twitter switches for me automatically, but there's a couple others that I should probably have automatic. But yeah, for the most part, I think I end up preferring the aesthetic of, of a light theme. I think I do overall too, but man, in a dark room... At night when I pop my phone open. Mm -mm. Yeah, of course, of course. So that when you get into those rules, of course, uh, I think dark theme will win. So I'm excited for it. I think we will have a link to the the material design spec. It's under the color section of, of the material spec as an entire subsection called dark theme, which includes the anatomy of it, how it should behave, the way it should like work across an application, the states, like how how hover, focus, tap states should work in dark mode. So it's really, really thorough. And if you're into the math behind material, they give you all the specific numbers and and some reasoning there. So it's interesting. Yeah, I'm excited for this. Okay, so uh, the next thing is that uh, Nest is kind of being pulled back under the Google name umbrella, not just um, as part of a being an alphabet company. This is all well and good. It doesn't seem like a whole lot is going to change, but they announced a new Facebook portal type device. It's called the, the Nest Hub Max. There you go. It's under the Google Home line, which will be rebranded under the Google Nest umbrella. The product name is the Nest Hub Max. Okay. Okay. Wow. Because your home is a Nest. And oh, Jesus. Yeah, basically it's a screen with a camera and a microphone and a speaker. But there was a really cool, a couple of really cool things that they showed off, which was if you're on a video call and you walk around the room, the view will zoom in to follow you as you walk around, which is which is really nice. You don't have to be like centered in the frame. It'll follow you around. I like that. And the other one was the pause gesture. So if if you've ever had a smart home speaker or something like that that you're listening to music, doing some house cleaning or whatever, and then the phone rings or somebody's trying to talk to you or whatever. It's kind of a pain in the ass to yell over the speaker and be like, hey, Google, yeah. shut the fuck up. Yeah. Hey, Siri, right? Sorry, I hope I didn't set off anybody's uh, Google Homes just now. But yeah, it sucks to to have to yell over the volume and it doesn't usually work that well. So they implemented this thing of like, just hold up your hand and it will pause the music, which is really smart, assuming it works correctly. If it's accurate, if it's fast, if it doesn't misinterpret mm-hmm. other hand gestures, like people people talk with their hands as well. And like, yeah, maybe I'm doing the nene and it, and it <laughs> <laughs> to the camera. 
<laughs> yeah, and it misperceives it as yeah. me putting the whole... No, keep the music going. I was just nay-naying. Yeah. Anyways, I thought that was interesting. And and uh, they had a similar thing for uh, if alarm is going off, you don't have to set it up with the activation word. You don't have to say, hey, Google, stop. You can just say stop, and it'll figure it out, which is pretty cool. That's cool. It also has facial recognition, so it has multi-user support. So depending on who in the home walks in front of it, it will... Show your calendar. Yeah, customize it for you. I don't know. I mean... I'm pretty anti having one of these devices in the home. I don't have a Echo, don't have a Google Home, don't have a, I I won't get this. You Luddite you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to think. Like all this stuff is becoming more and more integrated. If Apple made one, would I buy one? I don't know. I mean, they make one. They make that speaker, right? The HomePod? Nothing with a display. Like, you know, you could mount an iPad, but it's nothing like this. This is specifically built for so many interactions in a way that Apple devices aren't. But if Apple made a integrated speaker display that's meant to sit on the kitchen counter 24-7, would I buy one? I, I don't know. I don't know if Apple would ever do that. I'm wary of cameras and keyword, key phrase connected devices and being surrounded by those 24-7. But... Hmm. That's mostly because of all the nefarious things I'm up to in my off hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. See, I have nothing to be afraid of. So yeah, that's mind. a horrible argument for, for know, this right. kind of that's thing. That's the joke. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I am the opposite. I have microphones and cameras in almost every room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a microphone in my bathroom, but also a speaker so that I can you know, listen to music and podcast while I'm getting ready in the morning. I have one. I have two in the kitchen. I have an Echo and a Google Home in the kitchen. I have dots throughout the house i have yeah i have cameras throughout inside and outside the house i'm yeah i'm on the opposite yeah it it's just not a black and white thing and that's the it's problem for me because these these kinds of devices have the potential to save lives there's so much happening here for accessibility and people that are hard of one sense or another and being able to Mm -hmm. communicate with people with their voice or with hand gestures like this is really incredible stuff. Yeah, just give grandma and grandpa one of these things and it starts making a noise and then they tap a button and now you can talk to them from across the country. That's super cool. Across the world. Right? Or like the ability to have the key phrase to, in theory, dial 911 if you fall down. Like there's a lot of life-saving capability here. And then the inverse is true. There's a lot of very scary things, especially when you hear about Amazon collecting voice snippets and hiring contractors to listen and, and sort the things that are being said by real human beings. That kind of stuff is not cool. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll wait 10 years and this will all be... I mean, that's the other broader theme is all the intelligence is starting to move on device. So maybe someday all the intelligence will be on device and I I don't have to worry as much about networked requests containing everything I've ever said or or done in front of that camera. That brings me to another thing that they mentioned, which is uh, live captions, which I think would probably satisfy you on this front, which is they do all of the translating and everything on device. It never leaves the device. You can put it in airplane mode and it'll still work just as fine. So you're watching a video, you're hard of hearing, and you it will automatically have captions that are perceived by just listening to the audio and and putting captions out there. It doesn't have to be pre-closed captioned, which is a ton of work and usually is not available for the random video that your person, your your family member sends you, right? So I think that's really cool, especially for people who have hearing issues. Now they can watch basically, if they have a Pixel device, they can watch basically any video content ever and get live captions, which opens up an entire world of knowledge and information to them, which I think is really cool. Did you see MKBHD talking about the lens captions? Uh, no, I didn't. All right, so he shared 
three screenshots of the captions. You know how every video he says, hey, what's up, guys? MKBHD here. Mm -hmm. All right, so here's the first one. Uh, the first one, the translation says, hey, what's up, guys? I'm Kim PhD here, and this is Google Home Max. Second screenshot. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm QB HD here. Third screenshot says, I'm Kitty HD here. So apparently it's got a lot of learning to do. But to be fair, he does kind of mumble through that every time. Like MKBHD. MKBHD here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how could you know that's an acronym? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are limits to this thing. But for the average person saying the average thing that isn't a random acronym, I think it's going to be fine. And anything is an improvement at this point, but I think it will be a, a vast improvement. So I'm really excited to see that happen. Yep. Uh, and the last thing is they announced the Pixel 3a, a new phone piece of hardware that is, a, I guess, equivalent to the iPhone 10R compared to the iPhone 10 or 10s, I guess. Yep. And Brian... What sort of uh, what sort of situation do you have going on with that thing? Do you have any sort of relationship to it? I have purchased one. I'm holding it in my hand. Oh, oh, yeah. I've I've not owned an Android device in I guess almost three years now. I think I owned one at Facebook and used it briefly. But iOS has been my primary device for years. I've skipped Android versions, and I was what curious. What was the last OS you used? What, what like letter? I can't even remember the letter. Maybe L M Marshmallow. Um, so I haven't used it in years. I don't know what I've been missing. This phone is the cheapest, but good. It's like the best mix of cheap and good I've seen. So I think it was like $400. Yeah, it's $399, which is incredibly cheap for the type of technology that's available. Like compared to my iPhone. <laughs> yeah, which was what probably $1,100. Something like that. After taxes. Yeah. yeah. So I got one and I'm going to try and play with it more. I don't want to lose touch with what's happening for, you know, I think they mentioned two and a half billion people are on Android devices now. Active. Yeah. yeah. Active which is just a, a mind-boggling number, and I was losing touch. So I'm going to try and be better about keeping up and, and not becoming too isolated in iOS land. Well, let me say that the, the probably the best way to become in touch with those 2.5 billion users is not to buy one of the most expensive new versions of it with a with an unreleased operating system. Yeah, prob probably not the best way to stay in touch. But I appreciate the effort. But, uh, but I also can't buy a super shitty Android phone because I want something that I will enjoy using. So I didn't go for the super high end. I didn't get the uh, like Galaxy S10 like thousand dollar phone. So this felt like the Pixel is is good. It's first party, which means you get some special treatment, and yet it's not crazy expensive. So I could justify it as a secondary device. I don't have it uh, with a SIM, so I'm still just on one one network using it on Wi-Fi which of course will change my perspective of it if I'm not using it on the go. Best camera in the biz. Yeah, yeah. So it, it feels like a nice middle ground of all these things and it's at a price point that isn't too abhorrent. That seems to be the, the general consensus is like, you know, when you buy a phone at this price, you expect to get a shitty camera and a shitty screen and shitty build quality. And it's good build quality, it's plastic, but it's still good build quality. And it's a good screen. It's not the best screen, but it's a good screen. And it's it's like the best camera. Yep. They didn't really scrimp too much for the price, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I don't know what to say yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, mostly just to, to put a pin in this one. And uh, we'll check back in after you've had a little bit of usage stats and you can you know chime back in on what your thoughts are on, on Android. And I'm actually, if you can, I'd be curious to see if you can download Q, the Q beta. 
Yeah, so I, I looked, and the the Q beta won't come out till June for this device. But when it does, I'll try it. I, it looks like Q is really moving gesturally towards an iOS world, which yeah. is great like for people switching. switching, like from iOS to Android. But I think also is a superior way of navigating. Like, yep. they're just relaxing the rules of Android. There no longer has to be a persistent software navigation with the back app switcher and then you know return home. Like that is much more dynamic already, and it's going to even get more dynamic with Q. That seems like a smart move. I think they're off the bat. I do miss a few things. Like I'm, I've become so accustomed to Face ID that I think Face ID is superior to to Touch ID. The Touch ID on the back of the phone is clunky for me but I'm just not used to it. So basically every complaint could maybe be rationalized as I'm not used to it. Yeah. I miss raise to wake. I miss the tap to wake behavior from iPhone. The tap Android has, or this phone, I can't even say Android. This phone and this particular version of Android has double tap to wake. And then that shows you a, a very dark truncated version of you know the date, time, and your latest notifications, which is just so different than the way iOS handles it. Yeah, it's like a power save variation of your lock screen yeah so I'll, I'll try and take some notes as i use it more at a very high level here's how i feel every time i read the material spec i love it i'm like i want to use this spec all the time i love the math i love the rationale the the documentation is beautiful the animation makes sense the color like everything just ticks all these boxes i'm like yes 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 beautiful and then as soon as i download an android app and start using it it feels exactly like what i've just described it feels mathematical and calculated and it feels like it doesn't understand that there's a human punching the buttons soulless it is soulless like harsh even though the animations have circle they're circular and they bounce and there's ripple effects on on button taps like there's all this stuff that is meant to mimic what it's like to touch a screen or to to build an impression that your touch is being received by the the software and i think ios is is superior in every way there like the touch to wake plus face id plus raise to wake plus the swipes being fluid and not not necessarily as timed and mathematical the fact that ios doesn't have ripple effects on on button taps is actually a positive for me i find the ripple to be incredibly distracting Sorry, Ripple Ink Drop. Is that what they call it? Ink? I call it the Ripple. I think it's called the... Yeah, I think Ink is the Well, if I say Ripple and you know what I mean, then hopefully others know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I just call it... I think it's... There's a there's an official term for it, like touch reaction or something like that. But yeah, it's... um, We just call it the Ripple. Yeah. I, I find that to be incredibly distracting. Like, my eye lingers every time I tap something. It's like, oh, oh, was something about to happen? Oh, no, it was just this crazy visual effect that I had to, for some reason, see before it could transition me into doing the thing that I wanted to do when I tapped. Does that make sense? Now, Brian, I would like you to go on iOS to any sort of uh, list application settings, for example, and tap on a row in that list. Yeah. Do you see what happens? It's so much faster. It turns, here's the thing that's different. It turns gray at the same time that the view is animating in on Android the ripple completes before the next animation begins. And a perfect example of this for people who are listening along and for some reason have both devices and are weirdos like me, (laughs) if you open Twitter on Android 
and I know this isn't a first party thing, but this is, I think, representative of the way people have interpreted material. If you go to a tweet that has media embedded in it, for example, a photo, and you tap on that photo, it literally ripples across the entire thing before even beginning the animation to expand the photo to full size. Have you tried it multiple times? Because maybe it's just caching. Nope. Every time. Every time it ripples, opens, ripples, opens. And on iOS, it just isn't. It basically is instantly starts opening the second your finger has the like tap off react or, you know, touch up event. It's so minor. Like I'm nitpicking the shit out of this. It's 100 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds. But it's that every time I tap on anything. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're, you're right to complain. I think maybe that's an implementation detail in Twitter specifically, but possibly. And I don't know the reasoning for the ripple other than obviously to, to give you touch feedback when you tap on something that actually, hey, this thing was tapped and we're, you know, but like some some Android phones are slower and that ripple reduces the perception of time to completion for that task. That's fair. It also, it kind of like bridges the gap if it takes a minute to cache the subsequent screen before it comes in so you can be looking at something. So like, you know, it, it just like reduces the, the perceived time elapsed. But I, but I feel you. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it shouldn't. Like if it, if it can serve me the view immediately, it should. Yeah. And again, all this is is me getting used to things that I'm not used to. So we can hopefully have a some follow up, maybe ongoing follow up. Maybe I'll, I'll discover some really cool things. Yeah, Brian's Android corner. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> cool. Well, I think that's it for the main part of the episode. You want to talk about some cool things, Brian? Yeah. If if anyone listening feels like we missed something from IO or we missed any particularly interesting design conversations that came up after IO, let us know on Twitter. Tweet at us. DM us. We would we can have a follow up and talk about more Google stuff. But there was just a whole lot to go through and we we tried to pick the most interesting things. For sure. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure there are a bunch of like cool developer specific tech talks and stuff that happened during the body of the conference that aren't just the keynote. And we've only just covered the keynote. So um, I'll be watching that stuff and if anything cool pops up or if anything cool pops up that y'all see Send it in. Let us know. We'll, we'll chat about it on the show. Yeah. All right. Cool things time, Brian. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first for a change. Okay. So a uh, change of pace here. I'm going to recommend a YouTube video. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Never heard this before. Tell me more. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So little preface. Are you familiar with the video game series called God of War? Loosely familiar, yes. All right. For, for the uninitiated, uninitiated few of you out there who haven't played this game, probably most of you, it was a multi-game series called God of War that was uh, based on the character named Kratos, who is uh, basically a vengeful character who, by the end of all of those games in the series, has killed basically every Greek god that there is, from, from the nobody all the way up to Zeus, right? Okay. All in a bid to get revenge for the death of his brother, I think is the... Well, at first it's the death of his brother, and then uh, it's the death of his family by his own hand. It's a really tragic story. He's kind of caught up in rage and told to kill, and he kills and kills and kills and accidentally kills his wife and child, which leads to further anger and rage and revenge and stuff, and that kind of drives the whole series. So... Um, people got sick of it. People, you know, played a bunch of these games and they're all kind of the same and they're, it's like huge epic scale, but like you can only turn up to 11 so many times before people start to get sick of it. And people got sick of it. So the game went away for a while. I think it was probably 10 years or so. Just recently, probably a year ago, a sequel still in the same series came out called God of War, which is what video games do, uh, which is once a 
once a game has, once a franchise has run its course, you add the before the game and just call it the first thing again. Right? Yeah. So like Fast and Furious. Yeah. Or the Tomb Raider or something like that, or just call it Tomb Raider. Right. So this is a common pattern. But in this particular instance, the game designer named Corey Barlog, who uh, was behind many of the earlier games in the series came back to lead this one. And in the interim between when he created those games and when he started to create this game, his life changed a lot. He became a father and that changes a lot of things about who you are and what you think about the world and how you live your life. So I'm told. <laughs> so when he was brought back, he brought a, a totally different take on Kratos, this main character, and it influenced how the story goes. So the thing I'm going to recommend, all that was preface, sorry. <laughs> the thing I'm going to recommend is a YouTube video. It's a movie called Raising Kratos. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the, the development and creation of the new God of War game. And it is outstanding. I watched it last night. It's like two hours long. I love all these behind the scenes looks at things like we were talking last week about whenever I watch a movie, I think about the screenwriter and whenever, whenever I play a game, I think about the game designers or whenever I use an app, I think about the developers, right? So this is like crack for me. I love, I love reading this stuff or watching this stuff. Like it's, it, you know, it's the DVD behind the scenes features. Love it. And it was so interesting to see the process from you know, all the trials and tribulations, the ups and downs that the studio went through. It takes years and years to make a game of this size. It took like four or five years to make this game. And they, you know, hundreds of people working tons and tons of crazy hours just to make it land. And the amount of stress and second guessing and self-doubt that occurs, especially from a person whose career and the careers of everyone who he manages are at stake with this huge bet they've made on a multi-million dollar game that costs, you know, as much as a blockbuster movie takes a lot longer. And, you know, the studio is is funded by Sony. So if Sony doesn't like what they did, like, you know, the studio could go under, right? Um, so there's a lot riding on this thing. And long story short, it all turns out, okay, everybody loved the game, but seeing, and you probably knew that if you've ever heard about the game, it got like called a masterpiece and 10 out of 10s. I think the average rating was like 94 on, you know, across all of the reviews, which is insane for video game gamers hate shit. So <laughs> they are not uh, shy about saying when they hate shit. So uh, watching this movie was really cool. And uh, you have, if you haven't played the game, I would recommend, here's a little side recommendation. I'll put this in the show notes as well is um, if you haven't played the game and you don't plan on playing the game, there's spoilers in this movie about how the game turns out and some of the major turning points. So I would recommend this other video, which is uh, six hours long. Uh, you can skip through it if you want to, but it is all of the cinematics and major lore cut out of the full playthrough of the game. So it's all the major story points. So you can watch this basically. Uh, it's as long as a trilogy of movies, right? Yeah. Yeah, Six which hours. is uh, a pretty big investment. It's a lot to ask, but you do over a few nights, and it's all very interesting. And like the story is just so well done, the way it unfolds and and turns back on itself, and incorporates mythology and existing lore that you're already familiar with, and the way it turns it turns it on its ear that you know the things you've heard about the gods are not necessarily true, which is how it's been throughout the entire series. Is like. You know, Zeus isn't this benevolent guy. He's he's an asshole, right? You know, the gods are the gods are their own PR people, which is why we think so greatly of them. Right? <laughs> so it's interesting seeing that aspect of it and, and going through the story. But the main thrust of the story is ten years have passed, or as much time has passed in game as has passed out of game. In the interim, 
in those in-between years, Kratos has settled down, he got married, and he had a kid, right? Very similar to what happened with Cory Barlog, uh, Life and Imitating Art, Imitating Life. So it's this story not about revenge, it's this story about a father and a son, and a father with flaws, a father with, with major character issues, and the fear of seeing those same character issues rise in your own progeny, like seeing, seeing the worst in yourself in your offspring. And you know, how do you handle that? And how do you become a better person than you've been in the past for this person who now relies on you? And it's a really, really good. It's a wow. heartbreaking yeah. story and really intro- introspective and very compassionate storytelling, I think. And, and not something you would expect from a game called God of War. From a video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where the objective is to kill things. So uh, highly recommended. Uh, it's called Raising Kratos. If you haven't played the game, watch the um, thing I'm going to link in the show notes called like All Cinematics of God of War. It's a great story. Uh, I think you will be a better person for having watched watched it but yeah highly recommended love this thing and the movie is great even if you don't want to watch all that that content like it's it's just interesting to see the behind the scenes of what it makes what it takes to make a game nowadays yeah yeah that's that's fascinating and like the world where the stakes just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger it's nice to have something step back and be introspective like for example i want it to be like five more years before they make another avenger movies yeah like they've built 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 crazy climax now just reflect on that like i would love to see the next five years of movies reflecting on the outcomes of what happened like people thinking about the world as it is and what it meant to to do the things that happened in endgame you know no spoilers but uh like what is the impact of all this on the world at large and obviously the movies are all going to have to have conflict and and character growth stakes stakes Uh, i hope that they will give these big grand films a little bit of breathing room yeah i think what you're talking about is the same reason why i loved ant-man so much because it came out surrounded by a ton of movies marvel movies where the stakes were a giant beam is going to shoot into the sky and the universe is at stake and you know there there are cities raising off the ground and all sorts of shit like a city gets destroyed in this game or in this movie in the third act right but you can only do that so many times and the thing i loved about ant-man is just like just about a guy who wants his daughter back that's all it is. This guy who's running a heist so he can see his daughter. And this game, God of War, is about a father who is going on a journey with his son to spread the ashes of the dead mother. That's what the whole game is about, which is far more interesting than like, I'm going to go kill Zeus, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool change of pace. Awesome. Cool. So that's my recommended thing. That was a long one. Sorry, but I feel very strongly about it. I I got so much out of it and hopefully you will too. Cool. I will try and find some time, Marshall. As you know, I'm hard pressed to catch up on YouTube videos, but I'll try and find the time. Okay. My cool thing this week is an app, which I don't know how to describe this app. It's called Sift and it is a news application, but it is unlike any news application you've ever consumed. And the way it's structured is as a series of paginated screens. And each screen is very light on info, like two or three sentences, maybe a graph, maybe a small illustration or a table. And a story will have 20 to 50 pages like this. So you can swipe through them quite quickly. Kind of like uh, Twitter stories? It feels like that. Or moments, Twitter moments. Yeah, is that what yeah. it feels a little bit like that. But here's what's interesting is on every screen... 
there is an easily accessible link to the sources for that information. So for example, there is a, I don't know what they call this, a series on immigration. And it, it wants to help people understand immigration policy in a more neutral, unbiased way with graphs and illustrations to make stronger points. And so each each slide will have sources explaining how they came up with this graph or this statistic or where they got this pull quote from. And so you can really go down the rabbit hole of understanding, but you get this surface level, here's the one sentence thing you need to know compiled from six sources. The app itself is beautiful. The experience is beautiful. It is really, really well put together. Like the the interactions are great. I'm using this on iOS, but the interactions are great. They have a, a pay model, which I am not subscribed to. So I've, I've gone through the free content. They have a really beautiful story on immigration. So obviously I'm, I'm sticking a little bit surface level here, but I think it's fun to research for people who are into interfaces and navigation patterns. Uh, and then for people who are just looking for a little bit of a different way to consume the news, this might be something worth playing around with. It's not long form. It's a distillation of lots of sources into something that's easily digestible. And that's cool. Yeah. I like the paginated, like bite size information chunks. Yeah. And each page can be shared as such. So like at the top of each page, there's a share link. We'll basically take a screenshot of that quote or that graph. So it's really nice for people who want to share things where you're not trying to highlight a sentence and you're not sharing a link to a gigantic article and saying like, oh, read this, but I found this one paragraph interesting. Instead, you just can share that that one nugget of thing uh, of the story that you found compelling. So uh, that's called Sift. It's in the iOS app store available today for free. And then they have paid features that are interesting as well. And this is not an ad. I was trying to be a little sarcastic there. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, cool thing, Brian. And that's it. I think we're done. Yeah. Listeners, don't go away just yet. No, don't turn off. Don't turn off that pod. No, we got we got cool stuff coming up at the end here. You want to stay tuned for? Yeah, we're gonna have the design details wrap coming up. But before we get to that, huge thank you to Abstract. Abstract is a design workflow platform that extends the stable technology of Git to enable collaboration between design teams and everyone else in your organization to build great products. Companies like Intuit, Cisco, and thousands of others across 75 countries rely on Abstract to bring their entire design workflow into a single place for designers, developers, and stakeholders to collaborate and keep work moving forward. You can get started for free today by going to abstract.com. They have a 30-day free trial for you and your entire team. Go get started right now at abstract.com. So thank you again to Abstract for making this episode possible. Thanks, Abstract. And of course, thank you, Sarah and Drew, our wonderful editors, masterers, producers who make this show possible, as well as many other shows on the Spec Network possible. Our shows are at spec.fm. It's a podcast network for designers and developers just like you. So if you want more voices in your head as you go about your day, go to spec.fm. Check out some of the other shows. We got Layout FM for all of you designers. Uh, go listen to Rafa and Kevin talk about uh, design news and what's happening in their world. So uh, that's spec.fm. And uh, of course, let us know what you thought of this episode. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. We appreciate listener questions. We appreciate critical feedback. We uh, appreciate people following up on, on the things we discussed and asking for clarification so that we can do that in future follow-up. Keep all that coming in on Twitter. Sweet. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Gabe and Co. This is a, a group production that you're about to hear. So thank you, Gabe, for taking the time to make this masterpiece. I'll put lyrics in the show notes, too, so that you can follow along. Great. All right, everybody. Enjoy Design Details Wrap, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Yo. About to drop this. 
Bonafide banger, here we go. Yeah. Designers in tech, you can spot them from afar. They all wear the same clothes and don't drive cars. They all go on hikes, most ride bikes, and if you hit the dating apps, they look alike. They talk about some big ideas and use language like designs and tools we'll use to save the planet. Then they go back to their desk, standing, tweak a couple pixels because their job is so demanding. Text a designer, the message is blue. Meet a designer, they probably got a beer too. See a designer, they're usually white. I'm talking pale ass motherfucker, blindingly bright. They often have the best intentions, but the truth is they're just another cog in a machine that is ruthless. Cause if you give a guy a KPI, they're gonna push your attention till society dies. Different. We think different. They probably got a beer too. All of us uniquely happen to think different. 